Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Well, hey, everyone, we have a very special episode of the Ask Christopher West Podcast today, hosted by... Wendy West, here I am. We are cross-pollinating today with our YouTube audience. So everybody on YouTube, if you're not familiar with the audio podcast that Wendy and I do called the Ask Christopher West Show, hosted by... Wendy West. Check it out. Uh, We'll have a link there in the notes. And if you are listening regularly, as people do to our podcast through all those audio channels out there, and you want to check us out on YouTube, check out the link in the description, or the show notes, rather, for the podcast to get you over here to our YouTube channel so you can actually see us on video. Wendy, I am so happy to have you on the YouTube channel, not just our podcast. Thank you. You're my favorite guest ever on this YouTube channel, (laughs) ever. Thank you. So happy to have... We've We've done this one time before where we took our podcast into the studio here. We used to film it when we were doing it in my office, but... We've only done it once here in the studio other than uh-huh. today, so thanks for being here. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Thanks, love. You have any updates for our listeners and viewers about things going on with the TOB Institute? I do. We have a full schedule of in-person courses coming this summer, and I know for people who are planning ahead, you might want to know about that, uh, even though it's a few months away. We have a Theology of the Body Level 1 uh, taking on the road in Milwaukee in May. Mm-hmm. We have Theology of the Body and the Marian Mystery here at Black Rock Retreat Center in Pennsylvania, third week of June. And then the second week of July, we have another Theology of the Body level one here at Black Rock. And then uh, very end of July into the first week of August, we have Theology of the Body and Spiritual Direction taught by Father Boniface Hicks, a good friend of the Institute. So yeah, check out the links to learn more about all that. And uh, we also have a whole slate of online courses, but just wanted to put out a good word about the in-person courses that are coming up. If you do come to an in-person course, uh, please let us know that you're a listener or viewer, because here we are talking to microphones, recording devices, cameras. We'd love to see the real people. Yeah who listen, and then we we hold you in our hearts as we're speaking in our recordings. And maybe I should say, since we are talking to our YouTube audience as well Mm -hmm. on this podcast, and they may not know about the pilgrimage that you and I are leading in October to France. We're going to start in Lourdes, then we're Mm -hmm. going to get on a river cruise in Paris. It's going to take us up the Seine River, and we're following in the footsteps of saints like Joan of Arc, Therese, Yes. Uh, Therese's parents, mm-hmm. uh, Zelly and Louie. And uh, yeah, I've never done a river cruise before. No, so it's going to be course. fun. And I'm really excited to have you on it with me. Thank you. That's this in is... October. Did I already say that? It's in October. I'm so excited. check out the links to, to learn more about all that. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do it. Okay, so here comes a question from a patron. This is from a patron named Bob. Hey, Bob. Thanks, Bob, for being a patron. So grateful to you. During a recent podcast, you were speaking of how you resist temptation. You quoted a scripture, I treasure your promise in my heart, O Lord. Mm. What scripture is this? 
And what do you mean by the cross is sweeter than the promised pleasure of the temptation? Do you experience this in prayer? Can you give an example of how this works for you? I did look it up, by oh, the way. Oh, you did? Okay, mm-hmm. I'm looking it up on my phone right now. I'm going <laughs> to give an answer to that question. You did look it up. Okay. It's Psalm, Psalm, 119, Psalm 119, verse 11. Verse 11. Mm-hmm. I treasure your promise in my heart, O Lord, lest I sin against you. I got so distracted looking it up. What was the, what was the next part of the question? <laughs> what do you mean by the cross is sweeter than the promised pleasure of the temptation? Do you experience this in prayer, and can you give an example of how this works for you? Okay, sh- sure. Do I ex- Yes, it, do I experience in prayer that the cross is sweeter than the promised pleasure of the temptation? And I would put it this way. I don't, I don't find dying pleasant. You know, nobody finds crucifixion. Right pleasant or enjoyable but there's that's the path by which we reach the joy right and christ said for the joy well it's said about christ in the book of hebrews for the joy set before him he endured the cross it's that joy that is set before me not that the cross is the joy but the cross is the path to the joy Mm -hmm. And that joy is so exquisite. It's the joy of real life. It's the joy of real love. It's the joy of of being free from what Scripture calls the slavery to sin. That joy is so sweet that it makes the the sorrow, the the suffering, the, the death to self that is required to get to that joy worth it. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. How does that play itself out in mm-hmm. my own Life here would be an example. Suppose I'm, uh, this is just kind of a typical common experience because I travel a lot. I'm walking through the airport and out of the corner of my eye, I catch this uh, cover of a magazine in a, in a news shop in the airport that has some woman's breasts spilling out uh, on the cover of the magazine. And there is an inclination to me to want to zoom in on that and take that beautiful image of that beautiful femininity and feed off it in a way that would end up treating that person as an object for my pleasure. I know that I should never treat that woman as an object for my pleasure. I know that that even looking at her in that way would be a violation of my, my love and devotion to you, my wife. Uh, so there is a death when I feel that inclination to want to feed off of the beauty of this other person in a disordered way, there's a death that's required. And that's when I call to mind scriptures like, I treasure your promise in my heart, O Lord, lest I sin against you. And what is the promise? The promise that I treasure in my heart is that this desire being awakened to be fed by the beauty of the feminine, at its root is a good desire. And the Lord wants to grant the satisfaction of that good desire in a, in a good and a healthy way. And that ain't it. Mm. You know, dipping into the cleavage on the cover of that magazine is not the way to satisfy that desire that at its root is good. That's not the way to satisfy it in a healthy way. That's an unhealthy satisfaction of it, which will lead me astray, mm-hmm. which will not lead me to real happiness. There'll be a momentary pleasure that I get from that. 
but the violation of my commitment to you and the violation of the dignity of that person and that that selfish indulgence gives me a momentary pleasure, but it leaves me unsatisfied. It leaves me wounded. It leaves our relationship uh, uh, wounded. The, the, the death that has to happen to get to the joy set before me in dying to that, which is deep in fidelity in our love, uh, and I treasure your promise in my heart, O Lord, lest I sin against you. The ultimate promise that I treasure is the fulfillment of my deepest yearnings that is the promise of heaven. And one of my favorite descriptions of heaven in all of the scriptures, because I can relate to it so much, is Isaiah 66, where the prophet Isaiah describes heaven as where we will all drink from the abundant breast of the new Jerusalem and find comfort in the overflow of her milk. Uh, so that, that picture of that woman, you know, the way advertisers, you know, know how to tap those desires we have and portray a woman in such a way that it catches my eye when I'm walking past the newsstand in the airport, that is a, a false promise. That is a mockery of a real promise. The real promise is heaven, and the real image of heaven that Isaiah 66 gives us is the redemption of that lustful portrayal or that portrayal of a woman as an object. Uh, the, the promise of Isaiah 66 saves me from, from that mockery, from that counterfeit offering of satisfaction. So that would be an example of how how, how I work that out in my own interior and how that scripture, I treasure your promise in my heart, O Lord. Because if that is not real, if that banquet that awaits me on the other side is not real, if, that, if, if heaven is not real, if there is no ultimate satisfaction of that deep yearning in my heart, well, then I'm going to take satisfaction into my own hands, and that's what sin is. Sin is always, this is how John Paul II describes sin in the theology of the body itself. He says, he says, original sin is the doubting of the gift, or we could even say the doubting of the promise. I don't believe there is a promise of satisfaction. I feel the hunger. No one's going to come and satisfy it. No one's going to grant right. me the satisfaction of that hunger as a gift, so I have to take it for myself. That's the very definition of the original sin, according to JP2. Mm. And we're all broken and fallen and we all experience that very temptation so um i think i love that our listener just wanted to follow up and press in even more to this which you obviously shared on a recent podcast um and i treasure your promise you know can i think that's a beautiful example of like looking more closely what does that mean what promise yes yes um and I think, you know, for different people in different situations of life and different temptations that they're experiencing can ask the Lord to show them a promise he's made that is particularly meaningful to them to treasure. Right, right. Um, that would be just really strengthening in those times of temptation because um, exactly what you just said about that, the the lie that we're going to be fulfilled by something else is what gets us, you know, so far away and sinning against the Lord. Yeah. 
And then, you know, all the, the fallout of that can create such complicated situations in our lives that we have to turn back, turn back our hearts to the promises of the Lord. I know something for me that is so striking, and I know many people have quoted it, but the truth will set you free mm-hmm. um, is so powerful for me when in different uh temptations to recognize there's a lie there's a false promise here i want to live in the truth that's where i want to be and trust oh the surrender of trust that that leads me to is such a gift i i want to be in that place of deep deep trust in the goodness of our god and that i don't want to sin against you because you're blessing me in this place of trusting in your goodness. And what he wants to give us is far more glorious than the false promise of the temptation. It reminds me, I love in certain parts of the liturgical year when we renew our baptismal promises. Mm -hmm. And one of the lines, I think it's been updated in a newer translation, but the one that I remember is uh, where where we renounce Satan's empty promises. Mm -hmm. It might be something now in the new translation like, uh, illusory promises or something. But anyway, same idea. I renounce your false promises. I love declaring that. It's like a, I'm planting my flag here. You are a, I was about to swear, you are a, a liar. You are a liar. Uh, and I am not, I am not falling for your bleepity bleeping lies. Right. And do, get those lies out of my face. The truth is going to set me free. And and if I, if I f- cave into your lies, I actually become a slave to those lies mm-hmm. where, where I, I feel uh, like this is the only way I can ever give myself some semblance of satisfaction. Well, why do we sin? We sin because there is a semblance of satisfaction there where we wouldn't go there. But it's a lie. The semblance is all we get, and then we're left empty. The, the promise that this will give you what you really want is a lie. The truth, which is the promise of that there is a banquet that corresponds to our hungers, that is the truth that will set us free. But do we trust in that gift? Am I willing to stay in my ache and not take satisfaction into my own hands? That takes faith. And here's my favorite definition of faith, comes from JP2. Faith is the openness of the human heart to God's gift. Mm. There it is. That's what enables us to treasure his promises in our hearts, lest I sin against you. If I treasure it in my heart, I will stay in the ache in faith and open my heart to your gift. Do I experience that in prayer in, in terms of a real taste of fulfillment? I, I do. I, I, I do. Um, but it's, there are times when, when there's not a taste of the fulfillment, but you have to stay in the ache and trust that yeah. he's coming, he will come to fulfill that desire. Mm. And even in, in the waiting, and saint after saint talks about this, there is, a, there is a, an experience in the spiritual life of our desires getting stretched. St. Augustine says, uh, he compares the heart to like a, a, a purse. And, and he says, if God wants to place something in that purse that's too big to fit, he needs to stretch the leather of the purse. Mm-hmm. And this is why... There's a waiting in the spiritual life for the fulfillment of the promise because the waiting stretches our desire and increases our capacity to receive the gift that God wants to give us. One of my favorite lines in the New Testament, 
uh, which is pertinent here, is when Jesus, uh, they've been with him in a kind of deserted place for a few days, and they don't have any food, and it's time to go home, and Jesus says, I, I, it, the scripture says, his heart was moved with pity. Um, or Jesus himself says, my heart is moved with pity, for if, they, if, they, if I send them home, they might pass out on the way. Yeah. So if I send them home without food, they will pass out on the way. Well, the way, whenever scripture uses that phrase, the way, we can also apply that to the whole journey of the interior life, uh, the, the, the way to heaven. The Lord in his mercy, will give us little tastes so that we don't pass out on the mm-hmm. way, so that we don't give up on the way. Mm-hmm. He'll give us these little foretastes of heaven. Uh, and those little foretastes, be it a, a, a beautiful sunset or a song that just pierces your heart or, or a movie that, 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 that thrills you or, or the, the gifts of food, the, the joy of a good meal, the joy of a good beer, the, the joy of lovemaking as husband and wife. Those joys the Lord gives us as little tastes uh, so that we don't pass out on the way, right? And uh, there's a line in, in uh, the Mass, in one of the prayers, it might be the prayer after communion, comes up a couple times a year, where it says, it's, it's offering thanks for the, the needed solace of created things, the needed solace of things, of the pleasures or the joys that pass away, that awaken our hope for the joys that last forever. It's a prayer something like that. It's not a direct quote. But I love that the, right in the Mass, we hear this prayer that we need these joys. We need these things of the earth, uh, these pleasures of the earth. They, they, they only get us in trouble if we absolutize them. If we expect the joys of this earth to do what only the joys of heaven can do, well, then we're idolizing them. But as we grow in that journey of purification, the pleasures of this world become so many little foretastes of those eternal joys. Amen. Amen. I hope that's helpful for our listener. Next question is from a listener named Maxwell. Hello, Maxwell. Thanks for listening. A few of my friends consider themselves to be members of the LGBTQ plus community. When they heard that I'm hoping to attend seminary, they seemed pleasantly surprised curious and even excited for me Hmm. however when the implication that my beliefs condemn behaviors that they personally deem morally justified emerged these friends started to back away from me the particular beliefs that seemed most challenging for my friends to reconcile were surrounding the moral necessity of openness to life in sexual experience They claim that in a gay or solo sexual experience, there is no one who's intrinsically harmed. They seem to hold the culturally common belief that consent is all that is necessary for a sexual act to be justified and acceptable. I'm afraid of losing my friends. And I mean that in both an eschatological and a temporal Mm, sense. Interesting. I don't want to scare them off. Bringing someone to God can be a delicate procedure. Yes. And it seems especially so when he or she holds core beliefs that are so deeply contrary to the faith. I'm struggling and I need help. How can we change their minds? How can we change their hearts? Bless you, Maxwell. Uh, I feel your love for these people. I feel your desire for their true good. 
I, I want to release you from a sense of responsibility, though. I, I know we can we can take on, and there's a good sense in which we take on a desire to want to share the, the truth with people. Mm-hmm. We're called to that, right? We're called to make disciples of all nations. But sometimes we take on a, a burden that is not ours to take. Uh, I don't think Maxwell should should think that it's his responsibility to change their minds. It is his responsibility to love them. And love is what ultimately changes minds and changes hearts. It's not so much about winning an argument or convincing these friends of his that his position is the right one and yours is the wrong one. That just sets up uh, you know, grounds for conflict and, and tension. Uh, but rather to, to meet them where they are with tenderness and love and patience and mercy and understanding without condemnation. All of our wounds, all of our wounds come in one way or another from lack of love. Mm. So how do those wounds heal? Uh, in reverse, by genuine love. Now, that raises a big question. What is genuine love. What does it mean genuinely to love these friends? It cannot mean approving of their behavior. Uh, to, to separate love from truth is no longer love. And to separate truth from love, right, we can go in two directions. We can, we can separate love from truth, and then we have a, a kind of warm and fuzzy and no conflict kind mm-hmm. of love that feels good and because there's no conflict here. But it's not, in the end, it's not really love because love without truth is not love. But then we can go to the other extreme where we can have truth without love, where we're kind of beating people over yes. the head with, with truths, but we're not presenting that truth with understanding, with compassion, with mercy, with tenderness. Holding truth and love together is difficult stuff. Mm. And it will take us right into the heart of Christ that bleeds. And, and I, I, I love the image of the crucifix here as a, as a way of making a point that if we have truth over here and love over here kind of separated, right? Jesus is reaching out to both sides. He's reaching out to those who, who have separated truth from love because they're, they're right about the truth, but they're wrong about not holding it together with love and tenderness and mercy. Right, And then on the other extreme, we have people who are right about wanting to show people tenderness and compassion and understanding, but when they separate it from truth, it no longer is loving. Separate love from truth, it's no longer loving. Separate truth from love, it's no longer truthful. Jesus, an image of Jesus on the cross, we could say, is he's reaching out to both extremes with both hands outstretched. Mm -hmm. And truth and love meet in the center, and right here we are at his bleeding heart. And I would say, Maxwell, your invitation here from Christ is to learn how to bleed with him for those you love. Uh, There's a time to speak. There's a time to remain silent. There's a time to weep. There's a time to correct Uh, Jesus, whenever he opened his mouth, always said it in the right way, with the right tone, (laughs) and they still crucified him, right? So there's, I I used to have this thought that if I just found the right way to say it, 
it will be accepted. And then, you know, of course, that's not true because Jesus always said it the right way, and they, they still killed him. So there, there is this inevitable reality that following Christ will call you on certain occasions to make a stand and to take a stand that will, will, Jesus said, you know, there will be, I don't think I've come to bring peace, I've come to bring a sword and division, and there'll be a rupture in, in human relationships because of those who remain faithful to me. That's not justifying being a, a jerk or being a hard ass to people, uh, but it's an invitation to recognize that even if we are tender, compassionate, merciful, and understanding, in the end there will still be those who walk away from us, and we have to be willing to accept that. But Maxwell, I would sum up what I, what I want to share with you by inviting you to that center point, which is Christ's heart, where we learn to bleed with Jesus. That's, that's how hearts are reached, when our heart is willing to bleed with Christ's heart for them. One of the things I'm thinking as you share that is that when our hearts are bleeding, it's a it's a time of interceding, of yes. praying for the needs of others. And I, I'm struck by the claim that no one is intrinsically harmed by yeah, these yeah, perversions. Yeah. And I think that place is not, I'm, I think it's a key point for prayer, not for argument, but for prayer, because the people saying this are being harmed. Yes, yes. And they don't realize it. Right. And the Lord knows it because the Lord sees the deeper beauty that and love that he's made them for and how that is being so harmed by yes, all yes. this <clears throat> wrong behavior um, and twisted up, you know, approaches to relationships and to one's own body. And so that's a place where um, Maxwell has the opportunity to just take each of those people, you, you know, you actually know them, you know, you have a friendship with them to hold them up in your prayer to the Lord because they have been intrinsically harmed and yes. they don't even know it. So that's one thing I think you can do. And I also think that if the Lord allows these friendships to continue over time as you're in seminary, um, a simple, you know, saying, if you ever want to talk about anything, you know, I, I'm happy to talk just, just to put it out there as an option for them to know that you're available. Um, I think that that is a very loving way of honoring the pace of their journey and, and allowing your friendship that already existed before you went to seminary to to be the gift that God means it to be in their lives. You know, they know you and they, they, they have a friendship and here they were sort of surprised and intrigued that you're going to seminary. It means there's more to you than they realize and they may be kind of yeah, curious, yeah, yeah. you know, so that in itself is something to just let them know you're open, you know, to more. But I think especially one-on-one -on -one versus trying to convince a group or something like that can be most fruitful. Amen. I'm glad you pointed that out because uh, I had forgotten that line in there about, you know, no one is intrinsically harmed. And, mm -hmm. and maybe I could shine a little light on yeah. that. How does masturbation harm us? Mm -hmm. 
Well, in order to know what sexual health is, and therefore what sexual harm is, we have to go back to the original blueprint of our humanity. And we, we, when we don't go back to the original blueprint, we end up normalizing our fallen experiences as if this is the way the world is, as if this is the way God made me. And people will actually say that, God made me this way. Mm-hmm. Well, Christ has that marvelous line, and this is the line that launches John Paul II's entire theology of the body. In the beginning, it was not so. There was an original plan here for our creation as sexual beings, as male and female. And the call of human sexuality, according to the original blueprint, is to be an incarnation, a bodily expression of divine love. Divine love is the love of life-giving self-donation. From all eternity, the Father is pouring himself out in the generation of the Son, so as to share with the Beloved, the Son, the love and communion of the Holy Spirit. That's who and what the Trinity is, self-donating love, life-giving love, an act of eternal generation. God is not sexual, He's pure spirit, but He created us as sexual beings to image in our bodies, to incarnate that self-donating, life-giving love. Ultimately, that love is, is manifested bodily at its peak moment in what the saints call the consummation of the marriage of the Lamb. When, when Christ says to his bride, this is my body given up for you. St. Augustine went so far even to, to describe the, the cross as the marriage bed of Christ the bridegroom, where he donates his body, he gives it away, right? The sexual impulse, as God created it to be, we, even the word impulse is not the right word. John Paul II speaks of the freedom of the gift in the beginning before sin distorted things. Sexual desire was not experienced in the beginning as some uncontrollable impulse, right? It was experienced as a desire to love as God loves in a self-donating, life-giving outpouring of your very life for another. Masturbation epitomizes the inversion of that desire. It it throws sexuality back on itself. And those who fall into the habit of of masturbation, they are training their entire psychosexual orientation towards self-gratification. That's what masturbation is, plain and simple. And I'm not saying this to wag fingers at anybody, scold anybody, shame anybody. But that's what it is. it is. It is the epitome of the inversion of the sexual desire. And it is self-gratification, plain and simple. And I'm speaking from my own experience here. In my teenage years, I became addicted to, to self-indulgence in that way. And, and what did that lead to in my relationships? Treating others as objects for my self-indulgence. I just brought that programming of self-gratification into my relationships, and I ended up treating other human beings as a means for my own selfish gratification. Put it this way, if someone enters into adult life as a habitual masturbator, and let's say into married life as a habitual masturbator, 
And there has not been a, a, a break from that. There's not been a conversion of heart. There's not been an inner healing there. Well, that person is going to bring that same masturbatory mindset right into the marital relationship. And they're going to continue masturbating, although they're just going to be using somebody else's body. When that is your frame of reference for what sexual relations are supposed to be, just acting out my own self-gratification, but now I'm doing it with somebody else's body. If you think that's what sex is, and that's the only paradigm that really exists, well, okay, okay, that's just the way it is. And there's nothing wrong. Nobody's being hurt. But if you step back and realize, whoa, 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 I am immersed in a paradigm that is absolutely contrary to the original intent of God for my sexuality, then you realize I'm in need of, of healing. I'm in need of redemption. I'm in need of what St. Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. This is the hope that Christianity holds out to us. Not redemption from the body, but redemption of the body. Not redemption from sexual desire, but redemption of sexual desire. Where we can, by God's grace, by dying and rising, and this brings us back to the question, the first question we had on today's episode about how might this actually work out. And I gave the example of the magazine cover and all. Mm -hmm. I have to die to that disordered desire, which is self-gratifying. And I have to, in that death, trust that there is a power at work in me that can raise me up and redirect my desires according to that original divine plan, self-donating love. If you and I, Wendy, are not on that journey, then all our marriage bed is, is an excuse to use one another. And if that's what marriage is, you're going to be hurt and I'm going to be hurt. This idea that self-gratifying sexual indulgence doesn't hurt anybody is a lie. It wounds us at our core. But maybe we've just never had the possibility of thinking another way, seeing another way, living another way, experiencing sexual desire another way. Maybe that's just never been held out to us. So we kind of make a kind of um, a false peace with just usorial sexual indulgence. My brothers and sisters, there's another way to see. There's another way to think. There's another way to experience human sexuality. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ came into the world to restore creation to the purity of its origins. And there is real power flowing from the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to enable us to experience that redemption inwardly and outwardly. Mm. That's the good news. Amen. Next question. Let's go. Okay. This is from an anonymous listener. I've been married for 18 years. And for many years during our marriage, my husband was watching porn in secret. He told me about this four years ago. For a little while, our marriage was better until I learned more things. Some time ago, I realized that I lost a diamond on my wedding ring. It struck me because it felt like now the ring is really representing the real kind of love and fidelity that my husband offered me on our wedding day. Mm. So I decided to keep the ring like that and not repair it. Mm. And my husband never proposed having it repaired. It reminds me that our marriage needs work on both Mm. sides. Mm. But then I wondered... He gave it to me, so like they say in the Lord of the Rings, I'm its keeper. Should I go and have it repaired? 
I'd like to go deeper into this image and what it could mean spiritually for me. Wow. Wow, I'm really moved by mm -hmm. this question. There's so many layers that she's uh, honoring us by revealing to us in yeah. this question. I'm really struck. First, I'm struck by the real suffering. I just want to honor that and reverence that. There is real, real suffering involved in discovering that your husband has been sounds like there may have been even a, a level of addiction to porn here and that he had been hiding it for a number of years. Uh, when that comes out into the light, it's extremely painful. And yet there's also, as she said, our marriage was better for a time. There's a, there's a relief when the stuff that's been in the dark is now out on the table and in the light, because now you know what you're actually dealing mm -hmm. with. And I, I, I do think there is something to this loss of the diamond that, you know, it could have been entirely, uh, I, it's not like I'm, I'm saying, you know, some angel came down from heaven and, and had you lose that diamond, but nonetheless, you lost the diamond and there is something symbolic there. And I, I don't think she's foolish to, to read into that and to recognize mm -hmm. this is a symbol of something. The, what I thought our marriage was, it is not. It's not sparkly and shiny like a diamond something there's a lost innocence here there's a, a there's a, an eye-opening experience that we've had as a married couple that things are not what we thought they were or at least for her they're not what they thought for her they are not what she thought they were mm -hmm. do i think she should repair the ring I think, let's take that as a symbol of there's a wound in the marriage. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask the question this way. Do I think the wound in the marriage can be healed? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Do I think it's going to happen overnight? Absolutely not. Um, but if they commit to the journey of opening their wounds to the grace of their sacrament and to the grace of other sacraments like confession, the Eucharist, um, if they seek counseling, which they probably should. There are coaching programs for men who struggle with porn and women who struggle with porn. Uh, we've had some guests on our, our YouTube channel here um, who, who uh, Steve Picorni comes to mind and Steve Motel are two guests we've had. Mm -hmm. uh, Thomas, could we put the, their links in the the description for this YouTube video. Thanks. Uh, so we'll have links for them. And could we put the links in the the show notes for the podcast? Yep. Okay. So so freedom coaching is something I would recommend for this husband if he's open to it. Mm -hmm. And this is also one of the contingencies of healing. You have to be open to it. Yeah. And we don't know the husband's story here. But it does seem like the wife is desirous of, of healing and desiring mm -hmm. to grow. Yes, there is a path. It's a difficult path. It will take you into all the agony of the sorrowful mysteries, but it will take you also, as you walk through those sorrowful mysteries, it'll take you into all the joy of the joyful mysteries, all the light of the luminous mysteries, and all the glory of the glorious mysteries. This is the promise of the Christian life. 
And she's in a stage where she is really tasting the sorrowful mysteries. And maybe as a sign, right, the ring is, is a, what do we say? Take this ring as a sign of my love and fidelity, mm-hmm. right? That's what the rings are supposed to be. Um, the missing diamond, I think, is a sign of this season of her life. And I think maybe there's something fitting to that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think this is the only season of her life. Mm-hmm. And I think there will come a time where healing will have taken place and they will be tasting joy and glory. And maybe that will be the time to symbolize that with a new diamond. Those are my initial thoughts. What are your yeah, thoughts? Yeah, I, I love there's a certain maturity in the way this question is being worded yeah, here agree. somehow. A certain, like, almost like some of the the suffering that would go through stages of, of anger and self-pity almost seem like she's already gone through some of those stages and is at a different stage of the journey now that shows already that the Lord has given her grace through what she's suffered. And um, I I really was struck too by the the insight. It just feels like it was a gift of the Holy Spirit for her to look at that damaged ring and see something true there. Yeah. Um, that's, it's really impressive. And I, I agree just that my instinct too, is like just to, to stay with, um, the meaningful symbol that she's wearing and continue to pray, you know, not to think that, um, I, I feel like she's already got a certain, as I was saying, maturity and sensing their situation it takes work on both sides you can't do it by yourself you can't Uh, and i guess maybe that's part of my agreeing with your sense that don't repair the ring because don't try to you know just fix it by yourself it it takes the openness on both hearts and uh just as you're talking about the husband needing to be open you know also she needs to be really open and not um not afraid to go deeper into the the details of their story together um in counseling as you said and in prayer there is a lot of hope it's it's a beautiful hope for the vocation accomplishing really what it's meant to accomplish in some ways you're making me think um with your question that there's something false about the perfect glitteriness yeah. of wedding rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow, they should all be a little damaged. Yeah, I li- actually like how, you know, we've been married uh, over 27 years, and, and I like the scratches on my ring. I, I do. Uh-huh. It It's it's kind of a, you know, it's a, a good symbol. A symbol. It's a good symbol of <laughs> yeah. the, we, we, we've been through the ringer together. <laughs> sure. And, and those, those scratches are part of our story mm-hmm. and all of them can can have a, a meaning a, one of my favorite points of of christ on the other side of the resurrection is that he still has the wounds mm-hmm. but now they shine with glory that's like the scratches on on yeah. our ring you know they yeah. can they can shine with glory that's, that's the good news i i'm seeing a, a common thread in all three of the questions okay. on this episode 
in, in the first question I was talking about, you know, I treasure your promise in my heart, lest I sin against you. And yeah. I gave the example of, you know, lusting after a woman on a magazine and, and how I need to resist that temptation. Well, here's, here's a woman who's married to a man who has not resisted those temptations. And he has fallen into that selfish, selfish indulgence of erotic desire that we were addressing in the second question. Mm-hmm. Um, there is hope, though, and and the the this wife, you, she's. We often say this on the podcast that spouses are each other's number one intercessors. Mm-hmm. There is a desire that that husband has, which is good, that he's taking to a disordered fulfillment, right? Trying to satisfy your thirst with pornography is like drinking salt water, right? There's a semblance of a liquid, there is a liquid in your mouth, but there's a, there's a semblance through that liquid that you're gonna satisfy that thirst. But the salt in the water causes you just more thirst and you go back for more and you become addicted to something that's gonna kill you, mm. that's going to kill you. That's the end game of porn. Porn is a hellish mockery of a heavenly reality. But when we don't believe in the gift of the heavenly reality, we settle for the hellish mockery because we think that's all there Mm -hmm. is. But that wife has the ability to enter into a place of intercession for her husband by offering the very pain that his use of pornography has caused her she can offer that pain as intercessory prayer for her husband's healing. And I don't know if there's any more powerful prayer than that, to, to offer the pain someone has caused you yeah. for the healing of that person who caused you the pain. Mm-hmm. That is powerful, powerful intercessory yes. prayer. Uh, I, I hope that's of help to, to this dear wife, who has suffered greatly. And I was also struck as you were, Wendy, that she said, I know, so what was the line? She said, I know I also have to be open to healing or I also have to look at some things or. Our marriage needs work on both sides. On both sides. Mm-hmm. Our marriage needs work on both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a humble, humble admission. Mm. Well, thank you everybody for tuning in to this podcast episode. If you're watching on YouTube, Again, check out, we have over 200 episodes of an audio podcast. You can check out the link and start listening to those. And if you're listening on our audio podcast, come check out our YouTube channel. We have hundreds of videos on our YouTube channel, not just from me, but from other staff and faculty here at the Theology of the Body Institute. Just start poking around, start exploring. You will find so much rich content that will take you deeper into St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body and how we apply it in everyday realities in our lives and in our world. Uh, For those who are listening for the first time to this podcast on YouTube, you may not be familiar with our typical (laughs) sign-off, but why don't you lead it this time, Wendy? You are an indispensable, unrepeatable, irreplaceable gift of life and love. Become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute.
with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you are going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes. Thank you.